It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. And ladies and gentlemen, before I say another word, I present to you the sounds of a toy that was sent to me a few months ago via FOCO. Ladies and gentlemen, my Edwin Diaz toy. It's a bobblehead, too, so his head is jiggling right now, too. But now, instead of the the pre-produced Timmy Trumpet, we give you the toy Timmy Trumpet. Uh, But yes, the New York Mets waste no time. They immediately re-sign Edwin Diaz, which basically confirmed my belief, confirmed your belief, confirmed everybody's belief. Because remember, we put it out on Twitter not that long ago, a couple days ago, saying, who are you most confident in the Mets re-signing? Not who do you want them to re-sign, none of that, just... Who do you think is the most likeliest guy to be re-signed of the big three free agents, Jacob DeGrom, Brandon Nimmo, and Edwin Diaz? And Edwin Diaz won in a landslide. It was like 80% of the vote, and the New York Mets took all the doubt away. Day one of free agency. It was basically day zero. I wouldn't even call it day one. It was day zero of free agency. They agreed to a contract that I think we pretty much expected, if you go back and listen to our Edwin Diaz free agent preview episode where we talked all about Diaz, his time here, his free agency, how to replace him. We pretty much said it's either going to be five or six years and it's going to break $100 million. I I think my official guess was five years, 105. So I'll be off by a few million dollars because it's looking like it's going to be five years, 102. There'll be an opt-out after year three. By the way, if Edwin Diaz opts out after year three, that's awesome. Because that means he was amazing for three years. And Edwin Diaz would look at how good he had been over those three years and say, yeah, I could do better than that. I'll make more than $20 million. So I I, I always laugh about opt-outs because I really think it's good for the team. If that guy is opting out, that means they were great. That means they did something that warrants them thinking, hey, let me opt out. I can make more money. So It's not a surprising contract. It's a record-breaking contract. You figured, uh, looking at Aroldis Chapman's old deal, looking at how good Diaz is, and also looking at the fact that there aren't a lot of great closers in baseball, this is what it was going to need to be. Five years, 105, five years, 102 in that range. So I'm good with it. Hoff, I assume you were ecstatic when you saw the news earlier today? Oh, my God. When I got the text from you, I was cleaning out my garage, and I was like, what the hell is this? And um, I was ecstatic wasn't even the word. I was euphoric. And it just means like what we've been talking about. This is a no BS winter that that it's already started that they're just Steve Cohen is going to start dishing out money. And I like it. First of all, I'm I'm thrilled that I broke the news to you now. I didn't even (laughs) realize that, you know, because usually when there's a a tweet, whether it's John Heyman or Jeff Passan, in this case, I saw it from Jeff Passan. Uh, I end up getting like five different people sending me the news. So if you send it to me, you may not have broken me the story. So when I sent it to you, I figured I probably got it from three other people, four other (laughs) people. So I feel very special that I sent that news to you. But it was great to see. It was surprising in terms of how quickly it happened. 
Uh, not surprising that the Mets re-signed him, obviously, but the fact that the World Series ended, I'd say, 10 hours, and then, boom, Edwin Diaz re-signs, I think shows you a couple things. Number one, what you said, the Mets aren't effing around. They clearly identified Diaz as one of their main priorities, and they made him the highest-paid closer in the history of baseball. So they obviously rewarded him, uh, but also that it was so quick. Like, they could have signed them five days from now. Wouldn't have surprised me. But I think for it to happen so quickly after the World Series ended, yes, shows that they mean business, but it also shows that they needed to keep him. You know, we kind of talked about it in the Diaz episode. Replacing him was going to be impossible. I mean, looking at some of the alternatives, whether it was Kenley Jansen or making some kind of expensive trade or promoting Seth Lugo, who you'd have to re-sign, saying, oh, yeah, by the way, you're the closer. None of those ideas were good. The best idea was Edwin Diaz. And look, there's no exact science to winning a world championship, obviously. I remember a couple of years ago when the Dodgers won it in 2020. Kenley Jansen sucked. The, the Dodgers were getting saves from multiple different people. Julio Urias saved game six. Blake Trinan, I think, saved game five. So not every team that wins a World Series has a dominant closer. But if you look back at the last two, and certainly the one that just ended, how good was Ryan Presley? I mean, look what he did during the postseason. He saved six games. He gave up one unearned run, pitched over 10 innings, and was great. And you go back a year earlier, even though this guy didn't even make the postseason roster of his team this year, but Will Smith was the closer of the Atlanta Braves. Same thing. 10 scoreless innings, six saves, was really, really important towards the Braves' run into winning a championship. So having a dominant closer is a major, major help. Now, what, what we also saw in the series against San Diego and in the series against Atlanta is that if you don't have a lead, your closer can be deemed irrelevant. And so I get that. Look, we, we all understand that. We all understand that having the best closer in baseball, assuming Edwin Diaz can remain in that position as the best closer in baseball, doesn't guarantee anything. He needs leads to hold. So as we saw in the series against San Diego, when Buck Showalter's desperately bringing him into a game already trailing, you need to have a lead. You need to have many leads for that closer to be the difference maker that he was for a team that won 101 games. But it's also a really tough role, and it's very difficult to find the right guy for the job. And I even look at our own history as Met fans. John Franco was here for 14 years, and even though he drove us nuts, he was a great closer for this team, or at least a very good closer for this team. But you look at replacing John since his heyday. Think about how many different guys have had the job, have had some good years, but in the biggest of big moments failed for us. Think about all the closers since John Franco. Think of Armando Benitez. Think of Braden Looper. Think of Bobby Parnell, even Billy Wagner, who they wouldn't trust to pitch in a tie game at home in game seven of the National League Championship Series. Frankie Rodriguez had his moments, but we have gone through so many freaking closers over the last two decades. And Edwin Diaz, miraculously, because it didn't start that great, didn't start amazingly well. Edwin Diaz has a chance to go down as maybe the greatest closer this franchise has ever had. He's here for five more years, and his story that he's written here has been odd in the fact that his first year here, 
ended up being so horrible by the end. But 2020 was okay. 2021 was better. And obviously, 2022 is dominant. So he's been here for four years. He signed for five more years. And now you hope that he's got many a lead to protect over the next five years. But I'm glad they did it. I'm glad they got it out of the way. I'm glad they took that part of the offseason's drama away because building a bullpen is going to be a priority for Billy Epler. He doesn't have a lot of pieces already signed. So at least having your back-end guy and a guy who's shown he can be used in multiple different ways by Buck Showalter was very valuable, and I'm thrilled they got it done. With that said, my wife made a comment to me at the dinner table tonight that I need to repeat to all of you. She said, you're not happy enough, Evan. I said, excuse me? The Jets beat the Buffalo Bills in shocking fashion. The Mets signed Edwin Diaz. What do you you mean? And she said, honey, when you came downstairs and heard about the Diaz news, do you remember what you told me? And I said, what did I tell you? Why don't you tell me? Why don't you tell the audience of Rico Bronia what I told you that made you, my wife, think I'm not appreciative of the Mets bringing back Edwin Diaz, and then I'll let Pete Hoffman decide, and he can say if I'm appreciative or not. So apparently when I came downstairs to tell my wife and son the news that Diaz re-signed, I said this. Hey, guys, I wish it was Jacob DeGrom, but Edwin Diaz re-signed for five years. And my son was like, yay. And my wife's like, oh, that's great. And I responded by saying, no, it's great. I'm really happy. But when I saw breaking news, Mets agreed a contract, I was really hoping it was going to be DeGrom. So does that make me unappreciative, Pete? No, it doesn't make you unappreciative. It's just, it's just Diaz, I think we all knew that that was going to happen. I still think that the, the, the Grom is, is the big lingering, uh, you know, move that we need to see happen. Like Mets fans don't want to see him go. I don't think we want to see him go. I think we're expecting him to leave. But again, like I think that that's the piece that's going to help really mold 2023 Mets is if DeGrom is on this team. So that's really like, that That would be like, a, like I remember the quote from, from uh, Paul Dottino back in the day when he was, was announcing a pregame Giants game and like, whatever, it's, nobody gives a crap. It's the fourth quarter and they scored a touchdown, but you hear Paul Dottino down the line, we're back in the game, baby. That's what I would feel if DeGrom <laughs> signed with the Mets today, we're back in it. Diaz is great, but DeGrom would be that much better. Yeah, yeah, that's – I want DeGrom back for two reasons. I want him back because, A, we're back in the game. You've got the two-headed monster, and you hope that Scherzer and DeGrom are more effective this time around in the biggest game possible. But to me, it's deeper than that. He's Jacob DeGrom, and I, I can't see him in another uniform. It will bother me to no end. And, I, you know, Mark kind of makes these comments recently which caused Met fans to think, oh, wow, something's going on with Jake, where Mark Hanna said, I spoke to Jake. Jake loves it here. Jake wants to stay. And all of a sudden, there's this momentum from Zach Wheeler's comments to Noah Syndergaard's comments to now Mark Hanna's comments that Jake loves it here, that everything we had heard prior to that, maybe it's not true. Look, I'll be perfectly honest. I have no idea what Jacob DeGrom wants. I'm not going to overreact to Mark Hanna's comments, nor am I going to overreact to the idea that his wife and family doesn't like it here. Because the truth is, none of us know. I have no idea. But what scares me is the idea that the Mets would be outbid for Jacob DeGrom. I can't live with that one. 
That will piss me off to no end. And I may be in the minority, and you and I may be in the minority, because I think there'd be a lot of Met fans who say, look, we needed Diaz more. We signed this guy. We got that guy. He's always hurt. Let him go to Texas. We'll replace him with this or that. And it's deeper than that. He is a future Hall of Famer who should wear a Met hat and spend his entire career with one team. So I wouldn't want to be outbid on that guy. And I've said this about Aaron Judge. I know it's different, but it's the same. I can't let a legendary guy on my team leave because someone else offered him more money. He wants to leave because he wants to play somewhere else. Fine, you tip your hat, you move on. But I can't live in a world in which the Rangers offer DeGrom more money or more years. And I know I'm going to hear some Mets fans say, but the Mets made a smart decision. They made a prudent decision. Sometimes I don't want to be prudent. Sometimes I don't want to be smart. So I guess my wife's right. As happy as I am that Edwin Diaz is back. Look, I'm playing the trumpets with my figurine. I'm glad that he's back. I I was hoping that the tweet would have said something different, which is Jacob DeGrom and the Mets agree on a brand new contract. So she's right. I'm wrong. I'm not appreciative enough. But but just to, to to caveat the whole situation, if the Mets or the Yankees, with their respective free agent, top free agent, DeGrom or Judge, are saying, I'm going to outbid everybody for this one player, but that's basically what I'm doing, you can't have that. You you can't have DeGrom be the last guy that they – big name they sign, that's it. I don't think the Mets would do that. See, if, if you're t- – if people, I think their mind frame is, Jacob DeGrom, if they p- send, spend, you know – $50 million a year on a guy, that's it. They're out of the running on everybody else. I don't see that being the case. I do see that in the with the Yankees, with Judge. I do see that. I don't see that with Colin. I just don't. Well, I hope so. And I think this was a great first sign that maybe his priority will be, I'm going to take care of my guys, and then I'll still go out and spend money to improve this team. But they had three big free agents, Edwin Diaz, Jacob DeGrom, and Brandon Nemo. One down, Two to go. One down, two to go. Edwin Diaz is back. Now I wait for the passing bomb or the Heyman bomb in the next three days. At least I'm hoping that says DeGrom and the Mets have a brand new contract. Now, coming up today on Rico, we are finally going to do it. We are finally going to speak to the man himself. My favorite Met growing up. Your favorite Met now. Rico Bronya. And also coming up this week on Rico Bronya, we're having a special week. Now, also, anytime there's breaking news, we'll have special instant reaction, emergency podcast, whatever you want to call it, to any kind of breaking news. So you never know how often we'll do a Rico Bronya. But we also have Trade Week, which I'm very excited about. Trade Week is something that you hate on Sports Talk Radio, but you secretly love it. And on a podcast, we're going to give you everything you want of it coming up on trade week two different episodes first we will bring in a yankee fan and we will create the fictitious never gonna happen but it's always fun to dream about it new york yankees new york mets trades i will present those trades we'll have a yankee fan say if they'll do it pete will represent all met fans and tell us if he'll do it also on trade week we come up with fair because that's the key here fair creative trades all around Major League Baseball because 
if the Mets aren't going to go out on an active spree of just signing random free agents, they may improve their team via trades. So look, the rule of trade week is we want the trades to be fair. Sometimes I'll create a trade. You'll say that's not really fair. Sometimes I'll create a trade. You'll say the Mets aren't getting enough, but I will try my hardest and you will try your hardest because we're going to take your tweets when you have trade suggestions uh, to make it as fair as possible. I'm even going to go to the trade czar, Adam Eaton. Adam Eaton is a member of my fantasy baseball league, but he's also famous for the guy who came up with a trade idea that I presented to John Heyman on WFAN. And then three months later, the trade happened. Adam Eaton created it. It was a minor trade, but in case you forgot, he said, ask John if the Mets would trade Jonathan Neese to the Pirates for Neil Walker. And John said, that trade doesn't make any sense. And then two months later, it happened. So we'll get his opinions too. So any fair trade ideas that you have, tweet it at us and we'll pick some of the best ones and we'll go through it and we'll analyze it because I really believe if we put our brains together during trade week, we will actually come up with a trade that happens. We will predict a trade and then we can go back, replay the audio. And if it's me or if it's Peter, if it's one of our listeners, we'll give you all the credit in the world. I created that trade. Billy Epler downloaded Rico Bronia, heard it, and proposed it. So trade week coming up on Rico Bronia. I know you're excited, Pete, because I love trade week. And I I guarantee you that we will text and tweet at John Heyman and let him know that we had it first. You're damn right we will. We'll say, yeah, Rico Bronia reported that in the second week of November. (laughs) So that's coming up this week. And, of course, anytime there's breaking news, at some point, Pete and I will record a podcast. We do have lives, you know. I host Afternoon Drive. Pete's doing middays. We both have a bunch of kids running around. So just give us a... I would say this when there's breaking news, and I think this is very fair. Within 24 hours, we will definitely produce for you a Rico Bronia. All right? We'll do the best we can, I promise. But ladies and gentlemen, you've demanded it. You've wanted it. You've begged for it. A sit-down interview with the man himself, ladies and gentlemen, Rico Bronia on Rico Bronia. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast is named after one of the great defensive first basemen of all time. It's actually a disgrace. He never won a gold glove. I have petitioned Major League Baseball to retroactively go back and award him at least three gold gloves. We present to you the namesake of this podcast, the great Rico Bronia. Rico, first of all, thank you. How are you, sir? Thank you. No, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for um, everyone coming up to me lately. You're getting a lot of play because uh, everyone's asking me why I haven't or how do I get to you know listen to your new podcast? I'm like, I don't <laughs> have one. I'm, I'm a part of one maybe in a way, but I'm not. It's not mine. So I'm getting um, actually quite a bit, honestly, the last couple of weeks. But well, the end of the Mets season till now. People started to really uh, hone in on the Mets, obviously, for they were, they were right there. Well, let, let me tell you, all right, because I want to talk a lot about your career, a lot of stuff, but I got to start with when I fell in love with you as a baseball player, <laughs> all right? I, yeah. I remember as like a young Met fan, I would follow the farm system, and they had this first base prospect, I maybe played third base, I forget if it was third base or first base, named Alan Zinter. And yeah. right before the start of the 1994 season, mm-hmm. I, I get a, I get a news update. The Mets have traded Alan Zinter 
to the Detroit Tigers for Rico Bronia. And I say to my dad, who the hell is Rico Bronia? Who is this yeah. guy? So we go on baseball weekly. Hmm. We start analyzing it. And my dad's like, yo, I just read the scouting report on this guy. Good defensive player. Not a bad hitter. Maybe we'll see him at some point. And you got called hmm. up a few months later and then hit the freaking crap out of the ball to the point yeah. where David Segui lost his first base job. And yep. I loved it. I was like, this is my guy. <laughs> my dad takes me on a road trip to St. Louis, and you went like six for six. By the yeah. way, do you happen to remember that game, or is that something oh, a fanatical 13-year-old remembers? Totally remember it. I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it might, you know, selfishly a personal highlight of, you know, my career. That was one of those, you know, top three. Top three. I mean, it was like, I think if Saberhagen pitched, actually made a, a three six three or two on that kind of a short pick and a throw back three six three went five for five the next night uh, hit a, a tenth inning home run to dead center field to to, to win the you know it was the top of the tenth I think I think it was the top of the, I think it was extra innings or the ninth or tenth um, to win the game so but I so I remember that series as kind of a getting over the hump series. You know, because I walked back in the locker room after that five for five game and the three six three and Saberhagen was all Campbell. Who are you? You know, where'd you come from? Who? <laughs> what? You know, where are you from? What's your name? And 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 then the reporters just kind of flopped. That was the first time the New York media, because they're all on the road. You know, all the all right. the, the, the reporters that follow the team on the road, they make all the road trips. So that was the first time. You know, camera lights, twenty thirty reporters asking me questions. Ed Lynch, the assistant GM, going, why didn't we bring you up earlier? I heard him in the background. I can still remember hearing him say that. And I was thinking, um, yeah, good question. No. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Seriously, <laughs> why didn't you call me up earlier? I get that. Yeah. No. I, 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 it was The timing was right. I remember that very well, though. Honestly, yeah, I can remember the hits. I can remember the, the – I can almost you know smell it, feel it. Well, it, it was one of those things where David Segui was the first baseman, and I think David got hurt. And so you got called up as his replacement and then just hit the crap out of the ball to the point where what were they going to do? They weren't going to send you down. And David Segui ended up getting moved to the outfield. And I remember thinking at the time, boy, David Segui must hate Rico Brown because (laughs) Rico just came up and literally took his job. You Wally. He got Wally pipped by you, the Lou Gehrig. So, I mean, I, I jokingly thought that as a kid, but was there ever resentment that you literally took the man's job? Well, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting to the really sensitive situation because I was trying to fit in, and but I was also trying to compete my tail off because you don't know if you ever get that chance again. So here you are from your your backyard and you're seven years old you're, to your chance in the majors, and you know that's all you think about for your whole life, and you get a moment. I mean, you might get a moment, and, and no more. So you're like you're competing your tail off. You're not sleeping. So as much as, you know, you can imagine that, I also want to fit in with the team right? because it was a growing budding team. And I knew when I got traded there, I was possibly going to be part of a growth, you know, youth movement thing. So I wanted all that to happen. But I also knew Dallas Green, uh, you know, or thought I knew him, you know, from my limited experience uh, in the, in, at that level and stuff. But you hear about him. And how guys either really love playing for him or hate playing for him. So I said, this is the right guy at the right time. I can compete like a football player. I grew up playing, you know, I had more of that hockey football mentality of compete your arse off, you know, and um, apologize later. 
And I, so that I was not, and I, it, two things, I know sorry, it's a long story, but um, I came off the worst slump in my career from I was playing for Bobby Valentine in, uh, you know, in AAA in Norfolk, Tidewater, Norfolk. Right. I don't know, four from my last 40, you know. Wait, so, so you were those. slumping, you were slumping before you got called up? So yeah, so the, from the beginning of that season in AAA, when I'm playing for in AAA with for Bobby V in, in Tidewater, Norfolk, right. uh, for the Mets, I had my best AAA year. I was having two months, three months of being a lead in the league and home runs and RBIs. My average was like, playing the best I ever played in my life. So for about two months or so, I'm playing as well as I've ever played. Bobby V totally helped me. I was getting good coaching. I was healthy, and then I went into a tailspin. So I was thinking, oh, but it was too good to be true. You know, finally, here comes reality. I'm going back to stinking again, grounding out to second, striking out. So four for 40, so, you know, bad slump. I don't even know if those are the exact numbers, but it's in the ballpark. And um, that's when I got called up. Wow. So David said, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> ironic because David Sigi hurt his hamstring. Yeah. So he pulled his hammy. He was going to go on the DL. They, they called me. Bobby V told me after a game. And he said, don't, you know, I don't want to see you again. Don't come back. You know, something a manager would say to probably every player, but I took it very literal. I said, well, I, you know, I got to get, I got to go. And I, and I got hot. So from being really cold to 0 for 7, my first 7 with the Mets, and then I got a hit, and then it was it was on. Oh, I just, took for some off. reason, I saw the ball different right. than I ever saw it before. Were, were, you, were you scared at that point that you were never going to get the call? Because you were a pretty good prospect with Detroit. You're traded to the Mets, but... I mean, I guess you never know. Maybe you actually never get the call. But was that a fear at that point that you were never even going to get another opportunity yeah. at the major league level? Oh, 100%. You just never know. I had one stint when I was 22 years old, a couple of years before 1992 with the Tigers. Uh, it went okay. It didn't go great. You know, I thought I can play here, but I need to, you just need to get a shot. You don't know if you get one. I was starting to, my health was starting to, I was 24 and I had this arthritic thing that um, I was wondering if it's going to be a hindrance. And it was from time to time. So I just, you're just not sure. I mean, there's so many questions. You believe in your heart you could do it, but then the next day you doubt it. And then you go three for three. Yes, I can. And for, you know, you ride that roller coaster of craziness in the minor leagues. When all I could think about is being a big league, you know, big league player, big, big league athlete. So, yeah, you don't know. I was ready to retire the wow. offseason or two before, you know. I'm only – I was, you know, being very emotional and stuff. Think of 22, 23. I, I can't do the same. You know, here I am a youngster. Right. But being drafted out of high school, I've been in the game now for five years, you know, four, five, six years uh, out of high school. And I'm like, I'm still young enough to maybe go back and play college football. You know, you know. By, by the way, was speak, about- <laughs> speaking, speaking of this college football thing, and I, I never had any idea about this until recently when I read more about you. Because at the time, I'm just – Here's this left-handed hitting first baseman who's awesome defensively. Went on fire in St. Louis where I happened to see him live. Became the first baseman for a few years. I don't know anything about your past. And I started reading mm-hmm. that you were offered a chance to be like the starting quarterback at Clemson. And yeah. you ended up turning that down to pursue your baseball career. What made you yeah. to pick, decide to pick baseball over what appeared to be a pretty, you know, pretty good college football career you may have had? Yeah, I still uh, think about it today. I mean, I, I don't regret it because obviously I was thrilled with getting a you know the time I did with MLB. So I don't, would never want to take go back on that. But I the reason I still help out and coach some football in high school and college after my career playing years is because I miss football. It's just once you got that in your blood, it's hard to get rid of it. And 
Yeah. So Danny Ford, the head coach for uh, the Clemson Tigers, a top 10 team. They're going for a national championship just kind of as they are now. Um, back then they were, uh, you know, maybe lose one, two games. 1981, they won the national title. So this is like 87. And they they recruited me. I, I got offered by USC, uh, Miami. Wow. So we're talking, you know, these are the, yeah. these are the Gino Toretta, Vinny Testaverde, Jimmy Johnson was the coach. Uh, the the, the uh, Todd Marinovich, I was the same year as Todd Marinovich, and they offered me wow. as they offered him. So I was out there on my visit. It was one of my five official visits to SC with uh, – um, they had a, they beat Michigan state that year in the Rose bowl. So they were, you know, winning the pack. What was it? Pack eight back then or whatever it was. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, Wake Forest, Georgia tech and Miami and Georgia tech was in there having a good run too. So it was football all the way. It was baseball was a maybe, I don't know, if, but football, it was all football all the time. Penn state, but they didn't, I wanted to play baseball maybe too. And they didn't have baseball. They came after me real hard. And those were, you know, Joe Paterno, that was when they were going to the sugar bowl. Yeah. Yeah. So it was on. I mean, I was football. They were at every practice. My senior year, I missed all class. They came, took me out of every class. They were at every, all these schools were at every practice, every game at my door. So what, what did in the you, morning before school? what did you like doing more? You know, did you like playing football more than playing mm-hmm. baseball? Yeah. I always thought that I enjoyed doing what I was doing at the time. Cause I was a play multiple sport guy, all, you know, three sports basically football, basketball, and baseball. So whatever I was playing, I really enjoyed the most. But I always looked forward to the next sport. There was just never anything comparable to uh, game day on football. You know, the preparation's tough. And, you know, baseball's great because you play every day, you know, but basketball a few times a week. But game day on football day was different than anything. And it was, you know, we were a state champion in Connecticut. So, we, you know, winning the league, it was a big, big deal around here at home. And, um, you know, Danny Ford flying up on my Thanksgiving Day game my senior year on a on their Clemson Tiger eight-passenger private jet. And he watched in the rain mm. Thanksgiving morning away from his family, kids and everyone. Flew back. He was going to fly back at halftime to South Carolina from Watertown, Connecticut. Stayed. The game was so good. He stayed. He was drenched. Just talking mm. after the game and rain was dripping off my helmet and his hair. So, it was crazy. It was so much fun. Um, and I didn't think I would be drafted in the first round for baseball. So for me, it was football until that, you know, that actually happened. So being drafted first round, cause you're drafted out of high school, first round pick. So obviously yeah. you're highly regarded. That was the thing that convinced you. Let me pursue the baseball. Yeah. It was kind of the time when scouts and organizations follow trends, obviously. And that was a two sport, multi-sport athlete time. For like high draft picks, it was, you know, I was not a Bo Jackson, but that was the time of Bo Jackson. You know, right. that was the time of Deion Sanders. So, or, you know, th- these were multi-sport athletes. And I think a lot of the teams were trying to take multi-sport athletes and use the athletic thing to make them into baseball players. So I was the last pick of the first round. I, th- I was told I'd be a third, fourth, fifth round pick at the you know highest, the best. Mm. And I was the last pick of the first round. Um yeah, and they just wanted it. They, you know, I needed a lot of time to become a baseball player, but that changed my mind. I'm like, they're going to invest a lot, not financially, because this wasn't even close to what it is now, but they're going to invest in me, developing me as a baseball player. I got to look at this because I know I need that time, but still, it was so hard not taking. I mean, I signed a letter of intent with Clemson. 
I had the weightlifting program over the summer. I had my room with the other quarterback. I was going to camp early for, yeah. So, I mean, I was looking wow. forward to it. They, they needed a quarterback, too. The right. quarterback was a senior. It was a senior. So how and, good? Mm-hmm. Be honest with me now. And it's not going to sound like conceited or arrogant because you know what? You're a freaking hell of an athlete. Think about what you accomplished. How good of a football player would you have been? Do you think you would have made the NFL? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't think um, at the time I would have said yes to. And then maybe along the way I would have said, well, maybe. But now I look back and said, yeah, I, I definitely would have. Um, I de- I don't think there's any doubt. I, you know, I would have got a chance to play as a freshman. I uh, would have competed with anyone as a senior. I mean, Rodney Pete was a quarterback at SC and I'm like, I could, I'm on the field with those guys and tossing it around. Like I can, you know, besides and you were a left-handed head, throwing quarterback, yeah. a left-handed yeah, throwing quarterback. How awesome is that? I mean, that's, yeah. that's yeah, great. Cool. Cause there really aren't that many. And I've always wondered about right. that. Why do you think, you know, obviously Boomer Esiason, who's at our radio station, had a hell of a career, Michael Vick. But you look yep. at the last 25 years in the NFL, there haven't been an Optua, as who's had great success now, but there haven't been yep. that many left-handed quarterbacks. Why? Right. Arm strength usually is a problem, is a is something that it's, you know, it's like why do lefties don't why why don't left-handed guys in baseball catch? You know, it's kind of weird. They should maybe probably be able to, but I think there's a thing about you know, unless even even left-handed pitchers don't usually hold the velocity of right-handed pitchers. The average is usually one, one two, maybe 2.5 miles per hour. So there's an arm issue there. I mean, usually right. the lefty's known for his touch. He's got good touch and good feel and good accuracy, which I think is quarterbacking. You know, I mean, you're basically trying to pick the right receiver and throw it in his numbers and hit him in the, you know, hit the open receiver. So, but I think there's definitely a thing about velocity. There's not as many of them. I'm not sure why. Um, it's not like being a catcher because there's been more left-handed quarterbacks, obviously, than there have been left-handed catchers. Right, right, right. It's that kind of thing. I think, you know, looking at the arm, from a scouting point of view, the arm strength thing, uh, there's some there's some tendency for the ball to wobble or maybe fade and tail a little bit like a baseball thrower. Did but, you ever have time to watch baseball and football as a kid growing up? Like, did you have a favorite team, favorite oh, yeah. athlete? Oh, yeah. No, no, Steve Grogan, I was a Patriot guy. I mean, I was... I didn't miss a Sunday. I still don't. I mean, they played great today. The defense was awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, if they can huh? keep that, I know they, I could, I was shocked they actually <laughs> beat the Jets. The Jets had, the Jets won today, you know, so. We um, beat the Bills, baby. Yeah. Unbelievable. After losing to the Patriots, I, which makes me sick. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe the Patriots actually won. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I watched uh, college football, Alabama, Penn State, they were on, you know, every week back then when I was growing up. And, uh, of course, the Patriots on site, Craig James, when they came around, John Hanna. And I grew up, I went to the old Sullivan Stadium. And, wow. Yeah, and then the Red Sox. You know, I grew up with the Red My dad, so my excuse is that, that my dad grew up, he was born and raised in the north end of Boston. I had, I had no, no choice. That even if I wanted to root for another city or team, I had no choice. So he was the, the- right in the downtown Boston. Is it possible now, I'm trying to put this together with your dad being a Red Sox fan, that you're named yeah. after Rico Petroselli. Is that a possibility? I thought so. I They told me I was, but then later on, they they kind of, my parents kind of came up with something like Enrico, or is this an Italian name? But I was like <laughs> all over the Rico Petroselli thing because right, right. like, that's my team. Yeah. And I even met Rico Petroselli when he was managing AAA in Pawtucket and played against him. When I was a player, he was the manager for the Reds. 
And I, I was named after you. So I'm like 21 <laughs> years old going, I was named after you. Still thinking that. And my parents, I don't know, they reneged on I, I still don't believe them, though. I think I'm going to go with I was named after them. Yeah. The, the, listen, it, I, I could say totally. this from personal experience. The naming of kids, you know, it's really up to interpretation. So, for example, I have a son and his name is Jet. And I'm a diehard Jets fan. So there's an <laughs> right. assumption that he was named after the Jets. It makes a lot of sense. But me and my wife say, because it's true, it really isn't the case. We just wanted a J name, and we like the name Jet. But no one believes No way. Me. He was named. I don't believe you either. I don't <laughs> believe <laughs> I mean, how, you're a Jets fan. and Jet, I mean, it's just too after a J. I mean, it's a just happy that coincidence. To get to get, That's just to get to Jet, we need a J. <laughs> That's a great name, by the way, though. That's Thank an awesome you. name, especially if you're an athlete. I mean, think of that name. If you're an athlete. I know. Jet. Unfortunately, he has my DNA, so I don't know how great of an athlete he'll be, but he loves to play Loves to play right now. And as a six-year-old, that's great. Just have a good time and play. Absolutely. So, that's a great name. So no regrets then? Like you were, or some yeah. regrets? Like how would you kind of phrase the decision of – because you had a hell of a baseball career. I mean, you make the major leagues and you're an everyday player for a bunch of years. That's a great success. So – do you look back at it all these years later and say, hey, I made the right decision with playing baseball and pursuing it? Um, it's really hard for me to say yes, because I it'd be hypocritical for me to say no. I definitely I mean, you get 10 years in the big leagues, which is way longer than I thought I would get. How could I not say no? I mean, that I mean, yes, that was or yes, being that was the right decision to make. But I Completely miss football when I was playing, still miss it. I'm helping out with the local high school team as a volunteer coach. Um, so I would have had more fun playing football, but there's no choice or no, no chance that I, the choice I made was quote unquote wrong. I mean, because I had the time of my life, although I was baseball's really hard. I mean, there's a lot of. I don't know how you say that. How you, how do you say it? It's uh, Hal McRae, one of my hitting coaches, uh, great hitting coach, great great person, great, became a great friend. Said that you know baseball players, including himself, when he was a player, he said you know we're miserable while we're playing. It's only when you look back on the game from that previous day or that night, or back on your career, you know, when you look back on games and your experience, do you really enjoy? Wow, that was cool. But when you're going through it, it's really hard. Is that is that because that would have been the same with football or not? But is that because like you fail 75% of the time? Like yes. very cliche. Is it because yes. even when you're doing well, like when you had 350 in 1994, great. You failed yes. 65% of the time. I think you nailed it. I think that's it. I think that's, it. it's a hard sport physically because you play every day. You never can, you know, but you want to play every day. That's fun, but your body can't recover really precise. So you're really going to be challenged physically, uh, which I was, and every player is that plays every day, but the failing, you hit it. That's nail on the head. You got to be happy. You have to learn how to embrace failure. Right. And for an athlete, and especially like I was like the foot, you know, I had different Northeast football mentality where that wasn't acceptable. You know, um, even in high school baseball, you know, if you didn't go four for four, three for four, four for five, or whatever, five for five, it was a bad day. You're not failing at that level in high school baseball in the Northeast. So, and especially football, you know, you got to go undefeated, you can't even lose a game. Right. Failure was not an option. So that was always, yes, great point. That is it. 
So for you, all right, and I, this is not a, a knock on you, but I always tried to be Rico Bronia, the baseball player, when I played. Except I sucked. That's why I apologize. It's you not a knock been, on you. We, we might have been closer than I, I sucked <laughs> a lot too. I sucked a lot too. <laughs> but I but struck my, out a lot. My well, oh, forget strikeouts. Oh God, I got you beat <laughs> on that. But I always thought, well, I'm decent defensively, and I ended up yeah. loving making the scoop play at first base more than anything. Like that was my euphoric moment as a baseball player. And I wasn't a good baseball player. For you, I think of your defense first. Like. I think mm-hmm. Rico Bronia, gold glove defensive first baseman, should have won multiple gold gloves. We know it was a joke back then. Did you get more thrill from making a great defensive play than hitting a home run, or was it not? Nah, come on, Evan. It was hitting the home run that was better than the great defensive play. I got as much out of the defensive play um, because I knew that had to be a big part of my game for me to sustain value and help a team because I was maybe a 20 home run guy for a position that you needed a lot of power and that offense from. So I definitely took so much pride in my defense and so enjoyed making play for the infield infielders and the pitchers. Like when I saw Saber Hagen embrace me after the game, like great, great defense. That meant as much to me as, um, you know, any kind of play, any kind of uh, home run would have at the time, you know, a big hit, maybe or a home run, but I was just, I was just as thrilled to make that play. So 1994, you're called up, you're hitting the crap out of the ball, you're hitting 351, the players go on strike. Now, you're a player, but obviously you're not the one leading the walkout. How freaking frustrating was it as you're in the major leagues, hitting the cover off the ball, and now everything stops? That was... um really really confusing time for me because i did definitely didn't want to like rock the boat with the players union and say the wrong thing in the media and i was getting oops sorry i was getting some media attention obviously with my performance and in new york too especially with the big media um so i really had to make a d- decision personally to just and and i was yeah, I was behind the decision 100%, which is the back to the union. Obviously, it was a um, listening to all our veteran players. I knew how important it was for the Player Association of Baseball. I mean, so I tried to remove any selfish motivations or ambitions or feelings from that situation, as difficult as that might be. But I also knew that um, I think really felt confident that I had made myself, my pre- you know, my – the season went well enough where I think the, I thought the Mets were going to, you know, keep me around whenever this thing gets settled, the strike and all that stuff, you know, and the David Segui situation, he could play outfield and I could play first. I thought it, it got to the point where it worked itself out. If it was a month earlier, a few weeks earlier, it's, there might have still been a lot of questions, but I think right. I had a hundred and something at bats, you know, yep. and and was uh so I decided that was kind of my thinking to go along when, with the union, not say anything, just basically say, as I'm saying to you and on all truthfulness is that I just, just, I'm learning as everyone else is a young player, but I got to back the players. I'm a player. And um, that's what I decided to do. I think knowing that I had established myself, got my foot in the door, the Mets were going to give me a chance. It was a team I was becoming, you know, part of the family with, et cetera. Uh, de- but, but it was definitely hard. I mean, I got, it was hard. Sure. We were, our team, we were winning too. We started to win. Yep. I mean, we we're making a push. 
the Expos were really, really good. The Braves were great. And we were playing really, really well. We were winning a lot of games. Yeah, it was the it was the first time as a fan you started to feel like, okay, things are turning because 1993 was so bad, 1992 was so bad. And look, it was yeah. true. The Mets believed in you as the first baseman. You're the everyday first baseman in 95. You're the everyday first baseman in 96 till you got hurt. And yep. then they made some decisions during the offseason of 1996. First of all, do you remember, because these two names are fresh in my brain, do you remember the bums you were traded for when the Mets traded you for the to the Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah, you remember the name? Another Rico. Another Rico. Uh, yeah. Another. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? Uh, to- Toby Borland. Look at you. Oh, you know. Uh, and Ricardo jo- Ricardo jo- Jordan. Ricardo-, Ricardo Jordan and Toby Borland. Yeah, oh, Ricardo Jordan. God. Yeah, and they called him Rico. So that's how I remember. I think I believe they that was what his like. My name is Rico. Rico. That's a you know. There's no, it's not a nickname, right? My name is Holy Rico, but I think that's what they called him. Yeah. You know that's, what I called him? I called him a piece of crap because he wasn't very good. That's what, that's what I called him. <laughs> we, so we, when you're so traded, traded for these two, for these two crappy relievers, crappy, I'll, call I'll call them that. Were you pissed or were you excited about, excited a, new about opportunity? a new opportunity? I was really upset. I was really, really, really upset. Yep. I was very upset. Uh, it had nothing to do with going to the Phillies because I actually thought, well, they're a, a young building. You know, they were going to start a youth movement. I can, you know, be part of that. But when I put that aside, I just really did not want to leave New York. I, you know, I was close to home, living in Connecticut, loved the group of guys, enjoyed the management, really liked the city, just everything about it. It was right up my alley. You know, I did, the plane in New York thing was a strength for me, I think. Yeah, I felt like I grew up in the area. I know the intense pressure. That's right up my alley because that's what I was one of those fans growing up. So that didn't bother me. I embraced it. I enjoyed it. I think it actually helped me focus and perform better. I, I mean, I really do believe that. So, yeah, everything about it, I was upset. It was the day before Thanksgiving. It was, a, it was the Wednesday before, you know, the next day was Thanksgiving on Thursday. And uh, I was devastated. And Joe McElveen called me. He didn't even want to tell me. I think he felt bad about it. I think it was told, you know, he was part of the decision, but it came down from multiple places. Um, I think I was partly to blame for the whole thing that happening, though. I don't want to throw blame off me because I really was, I was hurt, but it was, eventually it was an injury that I thought I was able to learn how to play through later on. At the time, I didn't. I was scared to play through it. Because my shoulder was banged, it was hurt, banged up, needed surgery. But it was labral tears, and I probably could have kept going and got it done in the offseason. I think I eventually learned that because I did that like two or three more times in my career, getting four surgeries on the shoulder, I think. So um, I was partly to blame for that. When you saw that they end up trading for John Olerud, which happened after the fact by like a couple of weeks, like it was timing wise, it was soon after they trade Robert Person for John Olerud. Does that make it worse? Does that make it easier? Like, how do you react when you see, okay, they just traded for my replacement and it's that guy? Made it really hard because I, I felt like, okay, they had that in the works. I mean, that's really hard to do that fast unless you've. Not in the works per se. Maybe had they've had conversations that were really leading to somewhere. You know, you you just don't. That was an everyday first baseman. Obviously, went healthy, and they got an everyday first baseman. 
uh, a well-established one, great player in Olerud in the prime of his career. So that, to me, was not an accident. Um, and I felt like, you know, you, I felt hurt. It's just, you know, it's your natural reaction. They, they got rid of me. They got someone else. And he's good. I get that. But now I was in the same division, too. So that was part of this. Like, you know, <laughs> three minutes later or, you know, a few weeks later, I'm thinking, all right, I'm in the, still in the East. And you go from being really upset to thinking, well, we're going to play them a lot. And, you, you know, you're just thinking chip on the shoulder. The competitor in you wants to, can't wait. I couldn't wait to play them. And I think in my first game, I went berserk against the Mets, you know, and um, just because I was so full of emotion. I didn't want to leave the Mets. I mean, bottom line, I didn't want to leave. I would have played there forever if they let me, but eh, it's the game. And I enjoyed Philly. I ended up getting a you know, great opportunity there. And look, when they come out with that SI cover, the greatest defense, the greatest infield defense of all time, and it was great. I mean, I loved it. And I like John Olerud, so I'm not bad-mouthing him. He was a very, very good Met and was a tremendous hitter. But you were better defensively than John Olerud. Who the hell are we kidding? Like, the greatest defensive infield would have actually been greater if you were the first baseman with Robin at third, Edgardo at second, and Ordonia as a shortstop. Well, th- thank you, first of all. And I do feel like I had more range. And I think, honestly, J.T. Snow had me. I don't know if he had me or we were that, you know, maybe the same kind of player. And J.T. was different. I mean, he Olerud caught everything that was around him. His hands were terrific. And he was very, very reliable. Um, and better than just reliable. But J.T. Snow was Don Mattingly or Keith Hernandez. Like a, like a shortstop, kind of a, a cat-like you know, with extensive range, um, ridiculous ability with his glove. And I felt like JT and I were like, you know, with that kind of same kind of player, you know, I don't want to, he got gold gloves. So he, you know, tip, tip of the cap to him. But yeah, I feel like that, that hurt. I'm like, you know, they said the same thing to me when Travis Lee was a great defensive first, but he came into play in Philly after my four years in Philly. All I heard was, I can't believe you're not winning a gold glove, Rick, at first. And then as soon as I left, it was like, well, you know, Travis Lee's as good as you were. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that was quick. So, uh, and he was good, and Olerud was good, but um, I would have put my, um, you know, it doesn't come across the wrong way, but I would put my glove up with anyone at the position, no, no doubt. I, I also think I also it's think it's it's, it's so it's different, different today than it today was than back it was then. Back then was all back reputation. And, and it, it, wasn't, it fair. wasn't fair. I mean, Rafael Palmero won a gold glove and he barely played one year at first base based on reputation. And as much as maybe we all get nuts about the analytics on defense and how it may not be accurate, I do think it helps determine, hey, who is the best defensive first baseman or shortstop or any position. So I think if you were playing today, you would have gotten more respect for your glove than 30 years ago, where it was basically, ah, that guy's a great hitter. Oh, yeah, and he's good defensively. Give him a gold glove. It seemed more reputation-based than anything. Yeah, it was It was difficult to unseat a person, a player. You know, it's like it's one of those things where they're a perennial winner. And for good reason. I mean, they're obviously a, a talented, you know, well, it's for defensive first baseman, and they probably had a good offensive career going or, you know, season behind them as well. So you had to unseat. The, the whole thing was you felt like you had to unseat someone. Even if you had a, like, one season with the Mets, I think, I don't know what my fielding percentage was, but it was two, three, four errors maybe. 
Um, made every play, basically, along with a good infield. And basically felt like I didn't make an error all year. It felt that way. It felt like I didn't really make any errors. I made a couple, but that's it. And they said, well, he's, you know, he's a couple years away from maybe unseating Mark Grace or, or JT Snow. I think it was Gracie at the time, who was another terrific defensive first. He was terrific. But you had to unseat the guy. And he's hitting 310 or 315. And right. he's playing every right. day, and he's playing great defense. So he didn't lose it. I think that was the thinking back then, was you had to unseat a player on your ability, yes, but he had to lose it too. You couldn't take it away from Greg. Greg Maddox, you know, how is he going to lose the gold glove, gold glove um, status from being a pitcher? You had to right. unseat right. that guy, you know, like, and, 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 and rightfully so. He earned it. But I think that, I don't know, that's the only way I can, I can look at it is that it was like you had to blow the person out of the water in every category, offense was part of it. I mean, it really shouldn't be. It's a defensive position. Here's my Here's my, my one my issue I have, issue with, you, I have Rico, with you, Rico. All right? And I'm very glad I can bring this up to you. And you can offer me an answer of why this occurred. So I go to Old Timers Day 2022. I'm wearing my Rico Bronya Metchers. I'm very excited. Rico's going to be there. Very excited. Gave you a standing ovation upon you being introduced. And you don't come to bat? What's up with that? I thought you were going to say I blew a play at first base. No, I wouldn't. I'm not getting on you for that. That I understand. I'm mad at that. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> that ball was hit to me, and Robin Ventura is, you know, basically walking down the line, and and Pedro covered, although it was kind of a alligator arm reach. It was, it was, it was. Right? It was. I mean, come on, Pete. But I blew that play. Um, on that play, I think I might have been able to get an about after that. Although it would, it's not automatic. There were so many guys that were lined up to hit. Um, I took. A lot of batting practice. No one wanted to take BP, so I took rounds of BP that day. It felt pretty good. After, like, you know, four or five swings, I was like, all right, I, I'm actually, I feel okay here. So you were supposed to get an at-bat, and you didn't get one because there were so many guys. That, that, that's a little bit understandable. I mean, it's kind of a week. I really could have pushed my way through to an at-bat, but after I tried it, the semi-dive fall collapse on my defensive attempt on a ground ball you know, falling on a knee, shoulder, and whatever else part of my body. I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go wipe the dust off, get some water, sit down, give the glove to somebody else, give the bat to somebody else. Look, man, I man, I, I loved Old Timers Day. Day. Other than Other Mookie than Wilson, Wilson, everybody looked everybody awful. Looked I mean, let's just I mean, be honest. Pedro looked Pedro awful. Looked awful. Uh, by Piazza looked up, so I will never get on anyone's performance on Old Timers Day because everybody was bad outside of Mookie Wilson. He looked fantastic, so that I can never rip anybody for. He was awesome. It was a great day. I mean, unbelievable day. Good for Stevie Cohen. Good for the Mets. I mean, something they keep going down the you know in the future. However, they decide to do it, but it was an unbelievable setup. I mean, the Mets went. All out for us, the fans. I mean, they put together bags of stuff for us, equipment, locker room, you know, the suites after. So they took care of the players. I think the fans loved it. It was a first-class day all the way. And, um, you know, after that day, my wife and I, although we followed the Mets, we're close still. We're in Connecticut, and we watched the games. After that day, we had the Mets on almost every night at home. 
you know, which wasn't ha- always happening. I mean, we, we kind of have it on the background sometimes, watch some games in de- with detail. But after that, it was on. Like, we were – I was back in it, man. It was like that, that day brought me back. Hard. That's great. That's I'm great. glad that I'm glad Steve Cohn was able Cohn to pull that off. And Because I was curious, you ended up, spending, ended up spending, more spending more time with the Philadelphia Phillies. So, so – are you a are Philly you at a heart, Philly or are you a Met at heart? At heart and did old timers they maybe change it if you were a Philly at heart? Oh, that really puts me on the spot because they are two cities that don't like each other. I didn't like the other when I was playing for the other, but if I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest, be real, be real. Yeah, being real. Four years in a in a major league city is like in dog years. It's like ten years. And I spent two and a half and three in New York. They traded me. So I had that competitive chip on my shoulder. And then I went and spent four, honestly, four of the most enjoyable major league years. Of my, I mean, Terry Francona became the manager when I was traded there. So we came to Philly at the same time. Scott Rowland came there that same year. Bray, we, so we ended up having a good, good team, good players. But playing for Tito, you know, for four years in that city – Embraced me like New York did. The blue collar, try hard guy, you know, playing through injuries and giving everything he's got, which is basically all I could give, you know, because I, I didn't have the ability of those superstar players. I had to really fight for it. They embraced me that, that much. But that's why, you know, New York was the same way. I, I mean, I came onto the scene hotter in New York. And the Broadway lights, if you will, of New York were so exciting and took me in. Um, it's it's got it's a different setting in that respect than Philly, but it's a long-winded answer. But I mean, I was going to if I stopped at a Seven Eleven on the way into the ballpark in Philly. Hey, Reek, good luck tonight. Go get them. You know, it wasn't like autographs and you know, can I get you this and can get, can I have tickets? It was like you were a neighborhood Rocky Balboa, right? You were from the neighborhood, and you just got to go, hey, go win that game tonight. Good luck tonight, you know? Well, here's the ultimate question. If the Philadelphia Phillies have an old-timers day on the same day that the Mets have an old-timers day, which old-timers day will you attend? New York. But I'm I'm honest, again, being real, this year I was more upset with the Mets losing than the Phillies losing the World Series. Like, I watched the World Series with less – I can honestly say, I mean, I'm just being real again, because after that – Old Timers Day, I got back into the Mets groove, if you will, and uh, really followed the team, listened to you guys, listened to the podcast, and listened to Afternoon Radio. I really got back into it, and I uh, was not feeling the same way with the Phillies down the stretch. Of course, they don't have Jay Horowitz, and Jay was still <laughs> and he brought me into the whole thing with Stevie Cohen, so... I actually said, Jay, if they got a position available, I'm looking for I'm, I'm, Oakland. Uh, we, I didn't re-up with Oakland A's. So if they got a position available somewhere, I'm still looking for work. Bring, Bring Rico, Rico home. home. And I got I got to hand it to you. Because I, I had a curiosity. I wanted to look it up. The first year with the Phillies, how did you do against the Mets? Because you had a chip on your shoulder. And we as Mets fans think every former Met kills us, especially right after they join a new team. So I looked up the numbers. You son of a bitch, man. In your in your first year against the Mets in 97, you hit 412 with two home runs and four RBIs and 36 plate appearances with a 1,100 OPS. 
You didn't have a round. I mean, you were instant the Mets, and you took it out on everybody. Yep. I was. I mean, it's. I still feel it. I mean, I don't feel the the anger. I feel the moment. You know, it brings me back to that. I remember the day. I remember Bobby Jones threw me a changeup away, and I pulled it for a home run at Veterans Stadium. And I'm not supposed to pull an outside chain off the plate outside. My adrenaline was so because I was mad, upset, set. I had all these emotions flowing through me. That's how much I love. All right, so that's the way of saying that's how much I love New York. So when you love something, you know. I'm, High school sweetheart, you break up, you just can't get over it. You know, it's like so emotional. I don't know how it was my first. They gave me the chance of a lifetime to make the major leagues. And I was taking advantage of it. Um, my first injury hit me, and, 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 we, and we, you know, we broke up. That, that right, right. broke up. So it, that's the, I don't know, the only way to describe the emotions that I can still recall. And, um, you know, an athlete... Uh, baseball is harder than football and basketball in that respect, but, but I was going to hurt. I was going to get them. You know, I was going to get them. I did it. I think I did it to the Phillies. I couldn't wait to do it to the Phillies when I was with the Braves. Well, you did it. That's for sure. Well, Rico, I appreciate it, man. It's an honor that we get to host a podcast with your name being represented on it. We should actually put Pete gold gloves on the art form. Because on the artwork of the podcast so that you can get what you deserve, which was freaking gold gloves. So thank you, Rico. We appreciate it, man. Thank you guys are the best. I like your podcast so much. I listened to it on my travels out to UK to see my son. I had him on the ride. I had him on. They're running. You guys are great. Keep it going. All right, so trade week is coming up here on Rico Bronia. We will create the fairest Yankee Met trades, and we'll have a Yankee rep and a Met rep kind of tell us. They'll do it. They won't do it. We'll see if we can hit the jackpot with Yankee Met trades. And any trade ideas you have around the rest of Major League Baseball, let us know. You can tweet at us, at Evan Roberts, WFAN. I'll even check the comments section of Rico Bronia. If that's easier for people, put it in there. We'll read a couple of them, but make them fair. Please, please don't tweet at me, James McCann, for Shohei Otani. All right? This isn't MLB the show where you can just force a trade through. That's not exactly how it works. But we have that coming up this week and a lot more as the offseason is finally here because ding dong, the Phillies are dead. Ding dong, the Phillies are dead. The Phillies are dead. The Phillies are dead. Ding dong, the stupid fills are dead. Right, that's the only singing I'm going to do. Enjoy the rest of your week, and thanks for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 